Hello and welcome to another episode of Parentline Podcast. As I'm recording this, we are currently in the middle of our third period of lockdown as a nation. Our children are being homeschooled yet again and we are fast approaching the one year anniversary of the first lockdown. This time last year, the number of COVID cases in the UK hadn't yet reached double figures. If we were told then what the following year would look like, I doubt any of us would have believed it. And yet here we are. The pandemic has impacted us all in lots of different ways, perhaps none more so than our children. With the disruption to their school life, education, social life, home life, and with many experiencing illness and bereavement of family members, it's no wonder that many are now concerned about the future mental health impact on our children and young people. So what can we do as parents to help safeguard our children against mental health risks? How do we talk to our children about topics like anxiety and depression or even suicide? And where do we turn to when we need extra help? For some answers to all these questions and more, I chatted to Professor Siobhan O'Neill, mental health champion for Northern Ireland. First and foremost, Siobhan is mummy to three-year-old Annabelle. But as Professor of Mental Health Sciences at Ulster University, she has a passion for improving our national mental health like no other, and has been doing amazing research and work in this area for over 20 years. So her appointment by Health Minister Robin Swan in June last year as Interim Mental Health Champion came as no surprise. It was a pleasure and privilege to have Siobhan on the podcast to talk about such an important and timely issue. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Parentline Podcast, where we discuss the joys and challenges of modern parenting and explore how we as parents can give our children the best start in life. Siobhan, you are very welcome to the Parentline Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I know how busy you are, so I really appreciate uh, your time today. I suppose many of us can relate to that concept of being asked to perform duties in our jobs and have goals that perhaps are beyond the capacity of our time and resources to do them and stretch goals is that buzzword that jumps to mind. Your role seems to be as mental health champion to improve the mental health of the nation of Northern Ireland, which is the stretchiest goal that I think I've ever heard. I imagine uh, you must have to look after your own mental health with that kind of workload. I totally do. And it's my first job, actually, is to keep myself well, because I can't do this job if I'm unwell. I make poor decisions. Um, I do silly things. I say things that are not helpful. Um, and I won't be able to to view the bigger picture and make a difference. So always like self-care comes first. And that's regardless of what your situation is, you know, as a parent, as a leader, as a political leader, whatever your job is, it's so important that you look after yourself so that you're you're able to look after each other. But it's, it's something I have to remind myself of every single day. I'm sure. So mental health champion, that sounds like a really good superhero name. Um, but can you tell me a bit about your role and and the background to it? And I suppose, yeah, what, what's, what's your job entail? Okay, so if you remember back just before the pandemic in, in 2020, there was a peace agreement, an agreement that the political leaders signed up to that brought our executive back. And in that, 
was the commitment to a mental health plan for Northern Ireland. So the plan was then launched in the pandemic in March when, when all of this stuff was starting to happen. And as part of that plan, there was this idea of a mental health champion. But the idea of a mental health champion is that one person who would drive forward the change and, and keep an oversight, a bird's eye view on what's happening. You know, a person that would represent the people, particularly people whose voices hadn't been heard, um, children, people with disabilities, people who, who have mental illness and serious mental illness. And the whole goal is to make things better for people. Yeah. And I suppose whenever we see in the news, uh, Minister Swan coming on and saying about a, a mental health action plan and a 10 year strategy, um, as lay people, as, as parents, as people on the ground, it's quite often hard to see how that relates to our day to day. And, and uh, you know, a 10 year mental health strategy, does that mean we have to wait 10 years for progress, for things to improve? Or what is the scope of that strategy and what can we expect to see happening? Okay, so if you imagine mental health services, you're creating a, a mental health service and really making it brilliant. It's almost like you're you're building a house, you know, and you've got some parts of the house that are already there and you want to make the house great, but you need a vision. You need that architect coming in. You need the design of the whole house so that you know where to put your bricks. Now, you won't be able to, we won't, we know this, we won't be able to do all the rooms of the house at once. So we need to work out which which are the foundations. You know, things like workforce planning is so important for this because we could we could decide we want a particular service, but if we have no staff trained for it, then it just it's not going to work. You know, so workforce planning is that sort of long-term approach. There's things we can do straight away. So for example, the uh, perinatal mental health service, we didn't have that. Now we have the commitment and that's going to be starting in April. So that's so exciting and that's something that that's progressing really really quickly so there's lots of things there that you know that that are already happening that we're making plans for but we need to get the vision for our beautiful house absolutely perfect so whenever we're plugging in that's that it all fits together really well we're at the start of something great here but we need that vision to be right we need that plan to be really really right yeah no that makes sense i suppose when i was thinking about our, our conversation today i actually had to really focus my thoughts because there's so much you could talk about around the issue of mental health um, it's so broad and it affects so many areas of our lives. Uh, thinking back to my childhood and, and being at school, the words mental health didn't crop up an awful lot. Uh, it wasn't something that was really talked about too much. But, I mean, I remember phrases uh, being bandied about of kind of shirts sure, only in his head or something like that. You know, whenever I was young, as if there was some kind of hierarchy of illness, that physical illness was oh, that was proper illness and then mental illness was that was something you know, something less than. And we know we've learned so much, I suppose the science has improved and, and culturally we understand how our mental health is so important now. Would you say we have further to go as a society in terms of understanding the impact and the importance of mental health? We have. We, we've come a long way, you know, from the bad old days when we used to talk to people who were bad with their nerves, you know, and it was all very embarrassing. We didn't talk about that too much at all. You know, we put them in somewhere. And now we've got to the stage where we're talking very openly. I don't think we've got it right, though. I think we're still confusing stress and anxiety, which are feelings, which are states that the body gets into. So it does the same as physical health in that way. It's our, still our bodies reacting to something. But we're confusing that with mental illness sometimes. People, you know, whenever they get really anxious and the pandemic was a really good example of that, where lots of us, you know, were in an acute stress and we thought we were going mad at the start because it was, you know, we couldn't focus, we couldn't do anything. We were worried about everybody, you know, 
that that was mental illness. That was just our body reacting to a very normal stress. And, and we think young people in particular have, have difficulty differentiating. You know, they get, they get stressed, they get anxious, and they think that you know they they must be ill, and that's not the case. And then other people who really have very serious mental health problems don't talk about it. People who feel even suicidal are not talking. So. We, we need to just get a wee bit more clever about how we talk about our mental health and how we talk about stress, pressure, feelings. You know, that's, that's how it starts. It starts with our feelings, how we think about ourselves and the world, whether we can cope with the stress and pressure that we're under, because we all stress pressure and that's just life, you know, but if it's overwhelming and then over time we can become, oh, we can be sunk into a place where we feel that the world's a terrible place. There's no joy you know, that's depression. Or if we're in an age all the time and we can't sleep, we can't eat, or maybe we're eating far too much, you know, that could be anxiety that's doing that to us. So it's about mm-hmm. recognizing those tipping points um, from normal into something that's giving us difficulties, that's stopping us from, from leading the lives that we want to lead, you know, and, and that's where we come into the whole area of, of mental illness. So it's about really being more self-aware and aware of our body. Mm-hmm biological stress processes and how we respond so you know we we need a lot more awareness and education but not about ask just asking for help when we're feeling stressed i read some of the research you'd done in university of ulster with first year students and i actually wanted to put you over the the stats because i couldn't believe actually the figures that i was reading in terms of the percentages of of students who had had suicidal thoughts or had self-harmed can you summarize some of the findings there well, we asked our first year students in 2015 a series of questions, you know, and we based those questions around the criteria for mental illness. Um, and we found that no suicide questions, it was really worrying, just under a third had had suicidal thoughts in the past year. And one in five, one in 20%, I think, of, of our students had harmed themselves. And actually, to be honest, those those figures, they're, they're highish. But they're matching what we're, we're finding in other places as well. You know, mm. Northern Ireland always seems to be a bit higher than everywhere else. In our general population surveys, we also find more mental illness and more suicidal behaviour than other places. Now, we know that that period before you go to university that year, is a, it's a really difficult year for them. They're doing exams and a third of them have felt that life's not worth living. Now, those kind of feelings are actually quite common, even in the general population. And you know, a lot of us would think about, well, what are our lives about? What gives our lives purpose and meaning? Um, but it's a wee bit different from that when we're thinking, you know, that we could end our lives and that's an option. Most people don't act on those thoughts now. It's it's a thought that comes and then, you know, whatever the problem is, it's led to that. They they deal with it and things work out and they problem solve. But that is really, really worrying. That's, a, that's a, you know, very distressing. Self-harm is the other thing. Um, but no, in a lot of those cases, it was a one-off incident where they tried it out, they tested it. And we know that self-harm is a way that people have, again, of managing stress, of regulating, of coping. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous because you can get into a cycle where you do that every time you're stressed. And, you know, it makes suicide more likely because of that habituation. It's almost like it numbs you to the, you know, the idea mm-hmm. of harming yourself. So if you ever really wanted to die, then it would be easier to take that step. So it's a really worrying pattern of symptoms that it often goes away in its own now as well. It's important to say that, but we would be recommending people who are self-harming certainly regularly would be referred then for, for treatment. 
The other one that we don't talk so much about that's come across my desk recently is eating disorders, disordered eating, you know, and that relationship that we have with food. Again, we can start to use food to regulate stress. We can control how we eat or maybe eat too much, binge. All of these things are patterns of behaviours that people get into um, because they, they can't cope with the stress. So they don't have any other ways of coping with stress, you know, and they become mm. very compelling and very, very addictive. Both, both types of behaviours become addictive and people just can't stop and they're very dangerous. Eating disorders are very dangerous and there isn't really enough awareness about how serious these issues are and how they can manifest. And it's not always that the person's depressed or even anxious all the time. It's just that this is how they cope with stress. So it's that mm-hmm. pattern, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned uh, eating disorders there. I don't know if you saw that documentary with Freddie Flintoff that he did around you know his uh, bulimia and it was shocking and uh but so i suppose worthwhile that we talk about these things and we bring it in, into the kind of the public sphere and things that we talk about on a daily basis mm-hmm. really important there's a lot mm. of shame particularly with males who have eating problems there's so much shame there's so much shame around suicidal thoughts and behaviors as well people don't ever want to say it that's why we need to talk about it to get people help if they do disclose it and never, ever minimize those feelings when somebody says, you know, this is what I'm doing or this is how I'm feeling. And we accept that, validate that and listen to them and hear what they're saying and what it's like for them and then help them get help. And you mentioned, I mean, that in that study of the University of Ulster students, you say that, you know, these thoughts are quite common and that they can, you know, come and go and may just go on their, of their own accord. But as a parent, if you're thinking about your child, I'm sure those statistics are just scary because your worst fear would be that your child would be thinking such dark thoughts and that may act on them. And that study was done in, was it 2015, did you say? Mm-hmm. That was pre-pandemic. And, you know, there was already, you would say, a big mental health problem with our, with our young people. What impact do you think, and I'm thinking especially of, of younger kids as well, that lockdown and this whole period of the pandemic has had on our children's mental health? I'm really worried about our children's mental health and lockdown and the pandemic and everything else. The, the problem is children need other children. They need to play. They need to socialize to keep them healthy. If you imagine little pack animals, they're designed to be together. It keeps them well, keeps them regulated so they don't get you know, caught up in their own feelings and their own worries. School is so important. It's an important part of that. It gives their day structure. It allows them to meet their friends, but it also allows them to set goals and discover new things and grow and develop and and the structure is so important the healthy meal that they would get at school as well you know and that the teacher that's kind of keeping a wee eye on things and and knowing what's Mm -hmm. going on very very important all of those things have been taken away from children like nearly overnight their whole world collapsed they had to stay at home and they weren't allowed to see their friends in person and that's really difficult it's really really stressful it's a very real physical it causes that stress response it makes them anxious some children haven't even had much access to devices and wi-fi and calls and you know so that they could even connect online and we know that the young children really suffered especially the younger ones because they they didn't have Mm. as much access you know and there's so much data showing that at the start actually there was this this flip effect when the schools closed some of the kids loved it because they were getting bullied and Mm. you know so so that was okay after a while it started to get really bad when schools opened again they get really 
really nervous come back to school, but then that, that was okay. Now we've had this extended period of schools being shut. It's been winter, so they're not getting their exercise again, really important. They're not getting their walks to and from school. They're not getting in contact with the teacher. We know that referrals to social services have gone down. So there are kids out there, you know, who would ordinarily have been referred because of things happened to them at home. And that's not happening. So that's all of that is worrying. And, and it's also at a time when their brains are developing. They need that social stuff. If they're stuck in an anxious situation for a long time, you know, it can change for, for the longer term how they respond to stress. They can just be more anxious. They start to be more anxious because mm-hmm. their, their brains are growing. They don't go back. We flip back to the way we were before. Mm-hmm. Things that happen to you when you're a child actually do influence your mental health for the rest of your life. Now, I don't want to be dramatic. Most of them will be fine. It's about getting them back to school as quickly as possible. We also have the fact that they're at home with parents who need, they, they need a lot more attention and parents are really stressed trying. And, and that's significant. And it's women. And, you know, that's tipping them into levels of mental illness as well. Um, and it's also when kids are at home with stressed parents, they do things to children that are not good. You know, the relationships no. fall apart. There's violence. There's alcohol use. There's drug use. All of that stuff is happening. So we need to prioritize getting the children back and getting the younger children back. And when they do go back, actually allowing them that time to socialize, to do a bit of art, to do a bit of music, you know, to chill out for a while and and take a rest and take a break, a proper break from all of this stuff before we even start to talk about the books and the exams, because that will get them anxious again. We know that will get them really, really anxious. So we need to be very careful how we manage this return right now and get it done as quickly as possible. But I know there's a lot of older people and adults whose mental health has been affected by lockdown. But the things that influence adults' mental health are things like their financial position, whether or not they're juggling different jobs, their security, whether they're at risk of COVID. So all the things that the government are doing around the financial mitigations that will protect adults' mental health. Um, all of the things they're doing around the vaccinations will protect adults' mental health from the risk of COVID. You literally can't buy back this time for children. There's no other way of compensating for this, of making up for what we're doing to them. They just need to get mm-hmm. back. This is time, you know, we, we just, we don't know what interventions we, we can put in later to try and make up for it or what the damage is going to be. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the, the teacher's watchful eye and the, you know, the positive influences there and, and how it's just better for kids to be in school than to be stuck at home. And I was speaking to a primary school teacher that I know, and he was saying that a lot of the work he's doing now would probably be deemed social work because mm-hmm. the problems at home are so complex and so exacerbated by the lockdown that, you know, education certainly suffering, but mental health is definitely suffering for the kids and the parents as well. I mean, I, I have two kids, one who's in preschool and, and one is a newborn. And I'm so glad that I haven't had to do any kind of uh, technical homeschooling because the pressures when you're trying to do your full-time job must be just ridiculous for parents. Mm-hmm. I had about a fortnight at the start where I didn't have childcare. I have a week here and I'm a, I'm a yeah. single parent, like I'm a lone parent. Yeah. Um, so I had Annabelle, who was three and a half, with me for a fortnight trying to work and yeah. pair lectures. And I nearly lost my mind. It was so, so <laughs> difficult. I was trying yeah. to walk in the evenings. She was frustrated. I was frustrated. She was punching the yeah. screen at one stage. That's what she actually did in the middle of a Zoom meeting. Um, <laughs> the house was a mess. 
nothing was getting done. I had put I had these expectations that I could multitask, that this was possible. You know, you could set her an activity. And then I was worried about her screen time too, because that's what she wanted to do. Yes. If I wasn't with her, she wanted me or she wanted the screen. You know, no amount yeah. of colour and was going to compensate. And, and no. they're, they're we, the way they think, it's like 10 minute blocks. Um, six yep. minutes actually was, was what I worked out this morning that she could do on her own with anything <laughs> before she needed me again. Like, so this is it's so difficult. <laughs> it is so difficult. Yeah. And I don't know how parents are doing it. It's, I, don't, I don't think calling it homeschooling is helpful. You're just doing your best, trying to get through yeah. a bit of the work that they would be doing, you know, to keep everybody occupied. But it's, it's causing a lot of distress to people right now. Again, a really good reason to get schools and childcare and everything back again. And not to get political or anything or uh, or get into the debate around academic selection, but the whole transfer test debacle, uh, wherever you stand in that issue, has been um, a, a bit of a mess. I don't think anyone would say otherwise. And it's just added a whole extra level of stress to that age of kids and to their parents. I, I know of some children who had been tutored for up to about two years for a test that didn't end up happening. And the level of pressure that was on those children and the confusion and were they doing three tests or two tests or one test or no tests in the end? Uh, I mean, how do you feel that that has had an impact on those kids? Oh, that it's just been a terrible, terrible situation for them. The, the evidence shows us that the transfer test has an impact on children's mental health. A recent survey showed that 90 what is it, 92% of teachers felt that adversely affected children's mental health. Mm -hmm. We're talking about 10-year-olds here. So, right, this is something that needs to be looked at. The very idea that we're doing something that teachers believe to be harmful, well, what, what is that about? That's There's something wrong there, right? That was pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. We've had a situation where children have been under stress and pressure. They've been out of school. So the preparation for the test has been sporadic and there are huge inequalities in terms of the results of that test you know we know social class and, and financial economic stuff predicts the outcomes there generally and we know the pandemic has amplified those inequalities so there's all of that and then we hear about the children who've been preparing for this test and it was taken away from them so there was no easy answer here at all but the only thing that, that, that could have been done is that the test the test had to be cancelled because it wasn't safe to run a test it wasn't safe in terms of the transmission mm. of the virus apart from anything else but the stress of an exam for that age group this is the very youngest age group and we know as i could say an exams are stressful the best option would have been to design an alternative right back in june whenever the children's commissioner and a host of other organizations had said that the test needs to be cancelled but that didn't mm -hmm. happen so we had the uncertainty that that went on top of everything else and now it needs to be cancelled in november the children have still missed too much of of their schooling there's all of those inequalities that, that are there and there's the stress of the test so again we need a way around this we need a workable solution and we need to look at this in the review of education that's coming up i mean the terms of reference for that review have been announced and mental health could be potentially included there and i will argue that should be included so the transfer test is mm. something that's going to be looked at there but it, it needs to be cancelled now because of the stress and pressure it's going to put young children under it's really really bad yeah, we need to mm. apologise to that group as well. We, we we need to do something big to compensate them for what, what's happened to them, you know. And that maybe brings us on to a more general issue of safeguarding our children against mental health problems, I suppose, both in their youth, but also down the line as well. I mean, what tips would you have for parents in terms of 
addressing that issue of maybe starting when our children are, are very young and, and really safeguarding them against future issues with mental health? So I think it all starts, well, we know it all starts with the relationship between the parent and the child. Mm. And that starts from a very, very early age. All the evidence shows us if that attachment is right. Um, if it's mm. good, it doesn't have to be perfect. You just be good enough, meet their needs, but we get get really close to them. You know, um, and when we can do that, by doing that, we're protecting them from, from mental health problems because we're meeting their needs. We're helping their neural connections develop in a way, which means they'll be calm. They won't have a, uh, an exaggerated stress response. They won't be too reactive, you know. So that's all of that mm-hmm. stuff we're doing in those early years is helping them manage their own emotions. We're training them to do that. We're shaping yeah. their stress response. So by being there for our kids, particularly in the first few years, the first thousand days are crucial. So things like breastfeeding, that's part of it. If you can do it, you know, but just getting close to your child, spending lots of time carrying your kid about, getting to know them, really getting to love them, you know, that's that's supporting their mental health. When they get a wee bit older, it's about continuing with that, spending time with them, taking an interest in their world. So I referred to screens there earlier, you know, and a lot of kids are using screens now. So find out what they're looking at and try and join them and, you know, get a wee conversation going about what's going on on the screen and, Use use their wee toys, play with them, imaginary play. You know, how how is this animal feeling? Read stories, you work things through. And you can talk about how the different characters are feeling and how they're reacting. Um, and then when they get a bit bigger, you can actually do things with them that will help their mental health, like go for walks with them, make sure they get involved yeah. in physical activity, uh, make sure they're getting enough sleep at night, you know, keeping an eye on those things, the basic stuff making sure they have a good healthy diet and they're not starting to control their food or anything. They have a good attitude to food and their body image. And it's all its all about you keeping yourself right and then just keeping that oversight. We will never be perfect. So I think we all have to lighten up and find joy and fun, you know, and really enjoy our children. And then that relationship mm-hmm. will be there. So whenever things go wrong, when they're getting bullied, when they're worried about their exams, when they have a relationship problem, that they'll come to you that they'll feel that they can yeah. talk to you about these challenges and that you'll have strategies and things in place that you can do together um, to problem solve. So you're always listening, always fostering that relationship. That's the most important thing you can do as a parent. And your presence is enough for them. Like through their whole life, your presence is enough. But often mm. we get caught up in all the things they want and what they should have and having the right house and the right environment and the right activities. Mm-hmm. And we miss the good stuff, the, the joy and the fun. And that that's really what it's all about yeah i mean that's such an encouraging message that it all comes back to a relationship because you know we can do that we can all do that and uh and that's something we can continually work on my three-year-old son recently or a while ago we were uh going to be seeing someone that we hadn't seen a family member that we hadn't seen for a long time due to lockdown mm-hmm. and i said to him uh are you excited and he said um i'm excited but i'm also nervous and i said why are you nervous and he said I get a wee bit nervous whenever uh, I haven't seen someone for a while and then I see them. And I just looked at my wife and she looked at me and we were kind of shocked. Well, one, that he had the self-awareness to kind of know what he was feeling and why he was feeling it, but also that he felt that he could share that with us and that we could then say, you know, we're both introverts. We, we have that same anxiety when we see people we haven't seen for a while and just explain it with them. And I suppose it was comforting. I mean, there's obviously lots of times where he doesn't tell us what's going on as we head. That was just an example of one time he did. But it's comforting when our kids do come to us with little things like that, because then I suppose we feel if they come to us with that, they'll maybe come to us with the bigger stuff as well. 
fake, but I think that's brilliant. You know, that he recognized mm-hmm. that he was nervous. Yeah. Annabelle will talk about her tummy being a bit funny and yeah. a bit fluttery, you know, yeah. and we'll talk yeah. about well, what is it, do you think? <laughs> we go through all, yeah. do you think it's because you're feeling, and and, and it, it's great, but whenever they're able to locate it somewhere in the body, that can help too. Yeah. And sometimes get yeah. them to breathe or do a dance or, you know, try and move yeah. to move the feeling away can, can be really helpful too. But I think that's just, that's great. That's great parenting. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, get, I'll give all the credit the credit to my wife <laughs> <laughs> and he could point it to an event as well it's good that you know what the feeling is you know what's caused it right so how do we get it out there or just not normalize it maybe thinking then for parents how do we spot the i mean we've talked about the importance of relationship and i suppose safeguarding our kids against uh, mental health issues but how do we spot the early signs of of mental health problems and and where do we go for help as parents? Okay, so the early signs, um, often kids become withdrawn and they stop talking to you about what they're doing or what they're feeling. You know, they just shut down. They they spend a lot of time alone or, you know, whenever you ask. And that's why the relationship's so important because you'll spot this straight away if it's happening. You know, if they're a bit down, you'll sense it, you'll feel it because you're that, you know, you're connected. It's just that, that, that feeling that you get that something's not right or they're not enjoying life in the way they used to or they're not sleeping well is sometimes a really good sign, a really, mm. you know, a really strong sign that something's not quite right. All kids are going to go through times when, they're going to struggle with life and you know we can't we can't manage their lives for them so that's not a problem in and of itself the important thing is that they can cope with it and manage and problem solve so it's about trying to open up those conversations about well what's happening and listening really intently listening not jumping in too early to problem solve really thinking about well what what is it like for you and sympathizing and and often that's enough because the child will be able to work it out themselves or this is something that will pass or that, you know, we can't change. But then if problem solving is required, you can work it out together and think of different ways through it. But, you know, sometimes it can be so sad when a child doesn't get invited to a birthday party or a friend decides they don't want to be friends anymore or something, you know, and that's, well, it's really, really difficult to see your child going through that, but you can't fix that for them. But you can use Mm -hmm. it then later and you can say, well, remember you felt really sad when that happens but you know you got through that and now you've got this so you can really use that to help build their resilience whenever they had future problems that they'd be able to get through it but there comes an age when children don't share what's happening with their parents and Mm. that's normal too so it's good to have those other people in that child's life so that they know that there's somebody because some of this stuff is a wee bit embarrassing you know when 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 Mm. teenagers particularly are forming relationships and doing things they shouldn't be doing and all that so um it's just it's about that good relationship and listening and really listening to try and understand um, and validate rather than going straight to, well, this is the solution or you shouldn't feel like that or I'll go and sort this out for you because that's yeah. not, that's never the answer. Unfortunately, no. we just need to, to sit with it and let them sometimes solve their own problems. But that's that's life, isn't it? Yeah, it's such a temptation. I think I'm guilty of that, of being a fixer. And, uh, you know, trying to be really super pragmatic and go, OK, here's your problem. Here's here's the solution. When often I think, you know, just just listening and going, that must be terrible for you um, is is quite often <laughs> the better response. Feeling that somebody gets them, that somebody really yeah. gets them. That's what it, that's what they want. They don't want you to to make their lives better. But just knowing that you have their back 
that, that you're, you're feeling what they're feeling and you, and you get them. That is mm-hmm. everything to them. That will give them the strength to work it out themselves, you know. And it's hard to step back and, and watch stuff happen or even let our kids make mistakes. Oh, that's so hard. Yeah. Like, but sometimes yeah. that's what's going to happen, you know. I know the idea of talking to your child about mental ill health or, or that kind of big word suicide for a lot of parents is a frightening thing. And there's that fear that maybe if I say the word, it'll put it in their head or maybe I'll plant seeds that would grow whenever if I just left it, it would be all right. You know, how do we find that balance of knowing when to talk to our kids about that kind of thing and knowing when we maybe don't need to? I think if you're thinking that it's an issue, yeah. then you should say it. If it's if it's coming into your head as wonder, I wonder should I? Um, there's a reason for that, and again, that's your kind of your wee internal that wee connection that you have with your child, that bonding, that attachment. If it feels like something you need to ask about, then I think you should ask about it. Just bear in mind the kids under ten generally don't have that much exposure to it. You know, wouldn't know too much about suicide, but especially if there's been somebody recently or somebody in the media and they might be aware of a death that's happened. Um, I think it's better just to say it because they, you know, especially in secondary school, they have heard about this stuff you know they know about it mm-hmm. it's always important to ask the, be- the best thing is just to ask have you thought about harming yourself have you thought that life's not worth living suicide something you've thought about you know and mm-hmm. they will tell you usually it's not you're not putting ideas into their head if there's a lot of talk about it then this is a way of exploring that and getting to the root of what what their feelings are on on this are, you know. But I think it's really important that you don't kind of tell them, well, you shouldn't think about this, yeah. or you shouldn't yeah. talk about this, um, because mm. then you're shutting down, you're shaming them, you know, and that's mm. the worst possible thing you can do with a child is to make them feel um, ashamed of themselves, of, of a part of them, or, or of thoughts that, that they've been having. Um, it's just important that they always talk to you if they're feeling like that, you know, and that you talk about it because, you know, these feelings are a sign that something needs to change and we'll work out what needs to change. It's not a sign that you need to end your life. Um, and th- that that's kind of a very reassuring message for all age groups is that many people feel like this at times. It means there's a problem that we need to solve. So we've got to look at what that is. And we, we will get through this, you know, and I've got your back. And, but, you know, if you have a suicidal child or a child who's thinking like that, I would I would be asking for help straight away there as well with that. You know, and Lifeline would be the organization that you can call on a 24-hour basis. It's a wait, a wait, eight, a wait, eight thousand. Um, you can call for somebody else, or even if you're worried, just just have a chat with them, you know, and if your child's suicidal, treat it very, very seriously, but approach it again as, as usual. Find out more um what's happening. Don't don't be shocked. You may, you know, it's hard to hear that, but Try not to be shocked or condemn them for for having those feelings. Just explore them openly and help them problem solve, help them work work out what has led to these thoughts and why is their life not worth living so that you can really, really get it. Because this is something you couldn't imagine what a child, you know, would have to feel suicidal over. But things like exams, bullying, you know, they think their lives are never going to, if they lose Mm -hmm. a friend, if they lose a a friend or a girlfriend or something like that, can feel like their whole world is falling apart. You know, and mm-hmm. then teenagers, we know over exams, relationships, they've maybe taken drugs, they do something that they shouldn't have done, they're embarrassed about something. Um, 
just just find out and get to get to the bottom of it in a really gentle, compassionate, and non-challenging way. This is so difficult to yeah. so get help with this stuff. You know, that's a message. Yeah. Get help. Keep keep the communication lines open. Spend lots of time with them. St- sit in the bed with them if you need to. Stay with them and let them know that you love them. And even if they won't tell you, just knowing that you're there can be enough. You know, to support them and get them through those times. I know that the feelings come and then they go. So sometimes they're really strong and other times they're not so strong. So remind them that these are feelings that can come and go and we'll get to a point where they go completely if we work together and, and, and sort everything out. Listen, that's been so helpful, Siobhan. And uh, I just want to thank you for, for your time today. And, and thank you, I suppose, on behalf of, of all the parents in Northern Ireland for the work you're doing. And I really do think that it's going to have an impact. I just uh, appreciate all the hard work on making mental health services better in Northern Ireland and increasing that kind of awareness and advocacy around the whole issue. So uh, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. And thanks to all the parents who are doing amazing things by looking after their children and looking after themselves. That's as much as you can do right now. So you're doing great. Thank you. Super. Thanks so much, Siobhan. Thanks for listening to this episode and don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like to talk to someone around the issue of your child's mental health or any other parenting issue, please do pick up the phone to ParentLine on 0808 80 20 400. That's all for this episode and I'll catch you on the next one.